0: Welcome to TALC, Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills. This is the TALC Talks podcast, helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes. And this approach can even increase your job satisfaction. Hello, this is Avril Danchak here in Manchester. And welcome to this podcast, which is part of TALC Module 11 which is called Holding the Calm, and this module is concerned with the consultation skills that clinicians need to use when facing patients who are aggressive or abusive. The chapter we're going to talk about today is called TALC 11.3, Holding the Calm, Ethics, Rights and Responsibilities. Are these in conflict when patients become abusive? I'm going to introduce the background to this before I introduce our special guest, Professor Kasim Kassam. The podcast is part of a series of resources to help healthcare professionals to develop skills when difficult, abusive or aggressive consultations arise. These are skills to use in the heat of the moment, when the challenge is actually arising. The conversations between healthcare professionals and patients exist in a specific kind of space, which is socially understood to include a number of rights and responsibilities on both sides. Patients have rights to access healthcare that is equitable, appropriate to their needs and delivered by professionals having relevant knowledge and skills. It is expected that patients have responsibilities also to be cooperative, for example, to cancel appointments if they can't come, to be respectful to staff and other patients and to use services in a suitable manner and to give relevant feedback where appropriate. Of course, professionals may seem to have more onerous responsibilities. They have to be knowledgeable and skillful. They have to behave ethically and in accordance with the requirements of their regulatory and educational bodies. They're expected to treat all patients equitably and in a non-judgmental way. Clinicians do also have rights as individuals to be treated fairly and with respect. So if patients behave abusively or aggressively, are they impinging on the personal rights of health professionals? Does this alter the responsibilities of professionals? How can we think about these issues with some clarity that will enable us to respond effectively when the going gets tough for health professionals? So I've invited Professor Kasim Kassam today and I'm delighted to have you with us. Welcome. Thanks, April. So to begin with, I thought I'd ask you just to explain your current role as a professor.
1: Uh, I'm Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick, and I'm also a Fellow of the British
0: Academy. Right. What is the British Academy?
1: Um, it's, the, it's the main uh, body that represents uh, people in the, in the humanities and social sciences that are uh, perceived to have a Uh, achieve something in their careers. we've
0: achieved many things. Tell me though, how did you as a professor of philosophy get interested in clinical matters?
1: Well, it started out uh, six or seven years ago when I uh, wrote a book called Vices of the Mind. So Vices of the Mind is about what philosophers called intellectual vices. So these are intellectual failings of one sort or another. Um, that uh, people are blamed or criticised for. So, for example, close-mindedness, dogmatism, prejudice, wishful thinking, and so on. So, the book is about about intellectual vices. But that really got me thinking about a, a related subject, which is professional vices. Um, are there um, particular intellectual uh, failings or deficiencies that are specific to a given profession, uh, and correspondingly, are there virtues? Uh, that are specific to a given profession. So a professional virtue, as I understand it, um, is something that enables you to be an excellent member of your profession. It's a personal quality that enables you to be an excellent member of your profession. And of course, these virtues are going to vary from profession to profession. You can think about the professional virtues of a general practitioner, of a surgeon, an airline pilot, a philosophy professor, an intelligence analyst, And they're going to be different. Right.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, I know that philosophers are professionally trained to think hard about very difficult subjects, which is why we've invited you today, of course. So when we were thinking about the holding the calm module, which is about the skills when things get aggressive and difficult, I know that for many practitioners, these situations can be very troubling they seem to create conflicts of all different kinds, but particularly today, I want to think about the ethical conflicts that might arise. So, some practitioners feel that any kind of abuse is literally intolerable this sort of zero tolerance idea that we often talk about in healthcare. And that in those situations, aggressive patients should be told they can't access healthcare if they're abusive, while other people feel they have a responsibility to care for all patients no matter what. Um, But that can leave them feeling abused or exhausted, and clearly there's no simple answer to this. So I thought we might begin by thinking about the ways in which we might think about the issues that arise when a clinician and a patient are in some sort of encounter which is abusive or aggressive in some way before we start to sort of decide some answers. And I wonder if you could start to introduce to us the kind of ways of thinking about this issue.
1: Well, here's a, here's a preliminary thought. When we are faced with a, a, a complex, challenging, or confusing situation where it isn't really obvious what we should be doing, how we should be responding, I think it's helpful to ask oneself to, to begin with a very general question. And the general question is, what is going on here? Um, now, in asking that question, what one is really after is a kind of understanding of the situation that one finds oneself in. So in the case of an abusive or aggressive patient, uh, an obvious first question one might ask is, why is this patient being like that? Why are they behaving that way? And the answer to that question, is, I think, has an important bearing on how one should respond. Um, so for example, if the patient's behavior has a biomedical explanation or a psychological explanation, that's going to call for one kind of response or one kind of reaction, perhaps a biomedical reaction. Uh, But if the uh, aggressive behaviour has some other cause or some other explanation, then other responses will be appropriate. So I think it's worth actually starting out by just thinking about the different factors that might lead a patient to behave in this way or in these ways?
0: I think that's really helpful in in two ways, really. One is because it speaks to this idea that when we don't know what to do, it's good to pause and kind of think about what's happening think about the options, think about things more generally. And I also think it really fits in with the title of the module, which is Holding the Calm, which means instead of jumping to a response or an answer or a solution, is to remain calm and engage the, the cognitive skills that we have to try and think about the situation. So I think that's a really good starting point, actually. I'm wondering if we could start to think about other... What kind of ways could we then think about these encounters when we're in the heat of the moment? Mm. I'm not talking about kind of planning or institutional responses. That's in other, mo- in other parts of the module. But when somebody's in the heat of the moment, mm. what kind of ways might they be thinking about aggressive or difficult behaviour? Well, there's a very practical level at which
1: one, one needs to think about it. And that's the level of deciding how to, how to respond, mm. how to react mm. In such a way as to ensure one's own safety in the patient's safety mm. but that also enables one to do one's job yeah. um, as a doctor so that's one level at which one needs to think about this then there's the level uh, that you might call the ethical level so thinking in terms of one's um, moral or or if one prefers professional obligations in this situation and how they uh, interact with one's rights and the rights of the patient, so that's another level of thinking about it. Um, of course, I've mentioned the biomedical level. That's it's very important to at least consider the possibility that there's a biomedical explanation of what one's uh, what one's witnessing. And then there's what, for want of a better word, I call the human level. I mean, these interactions are, after all, human inter- human interactions. Uh, and as human beings, we very often deal with. Uh, challenging interpersonal situations, and hopefully we've all developed ways of of dealing with these situations, and I think one way to deal with these situations, just on a purely human level, uh, is to display what one might call uh, compassion. Um, I mean, you could say, well, this person is behaving in this way because they're awful, Uh, they're contemptible or evil. But but on a human level and perhaps also on a medical level, that isn't really going to be helpful. It might, it might be true in some cases, probably in very few cases, I think. Um, but but um, what, one, one needs to consider the possibility that there is um, a reason or an explanation for what one's encountering, and, and the patient might actually be responding to their own their own lived experience or their own experience of. Uh, the health, the health service, or of this particular s- surgery, or their experience of you or other medical practitioners they've, they've encountered, and I think that that one one needs to be willing to engage with these individuals on that level as well.
0: I think that's really helpful because we're thinking here about. The skills you might need, which are professional skills really, and the whole of the Holding the CAR module and indeed the whole of the uh, teaching and learning consultation skills resource is about developing those interpersonal skills that enable us to calm a situation and handle it professionally to do the job we're there to do which is to find out what the problem is and deal with it and you've also talked I think about almost the human level is about coming from the heart not the head isn't it and saying we're all human beings in this situation how can we use that understanding in a compassionate way and I'd like everybody to hold those ideas in the background throughout what we're going to discuss now But I would now like to focus on, as it were, the ethical, moral, if you like, philosophical focus of that. And there are different ways of thinking about this, aren't there? I mean, um, people talk about rights and responsibilities. They talk about different narratives. They may talk about different philosophical principles. And I'd be interested in thinking, when we start to focus down on that ethical level, how do you think about that?
1: Well, one might start by thinking in terms of of rights, but I want to just quickly explain why I I find that framework uh, is somewhat unhelpful. Um, So, supposing you think, look, a patient who is behaving like this has has forfeited their right to be seen by me, or to be seen by this surgery, and of course I can understand on a human level why that's a, a thing that one might well end up thinking. Um, So, a kind of crude way of putting it would to say, I don't have to put up with this, Mm. we don't have to put up with Mm. this. But having said that, there is still the fact of the patient with their condition and their needs uh, and the general obligation that the health service has to deal with people regardless of their their health condition or any other relevant factors. Um, so, So then supposing you dig into this a little bit further. Um, and supposing it transpires that the reason the patient is behaving that way is because they feel um, disrespected or patronized or they feel that they have been victims of something that philosophers call um, epistemic injustice. Now, I think that's going to put a completely different, um, different, different spin on it. Um, so let me just briefly explain what, this notion of epistemic in, in, injustice. So the thought is, the thought is something like this: that um, when you have encounters with other people, when you speak to other people, and they tell you things, um, you always need to make a, a decision or a calculation about how much weight to attach to what they're telling you, how much credibility to give them, and to give their word. Uh, now, it, it can happen that we sometimes, um, and perhaps even doctors do this sometimes, attach less weight to someone's word, to what they're telling you, on account of factors that really shouldn't be influencing you mm-hmm. their physical appearance, their social class, their race, their gender. Mm-hmm. So, in cases like that, um, the patient is the victim of what's sometimes called credibility deficit. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, they're telling you, they're trying to communicate with you, they're telling you things. You aren't taking them as seriously as you should be taking them because there's something about them that puts you off or that leads you to treat them in that way. Now, you can imagine a patient who has been a victim of this uh, systematically through various encounters, not just with health professionals, but with others, might at some point become resentful and... And and aggressive, and they they might, they won't, they no doubt won't describe this as epistemic injustice, but they might say things like, "I feel that no one's listening to me. I'm not being listened to. I'm not being heard." Um, And and in a situation like that, I think that that it's not obvious to me that the first thing to think or the first thing to say is well, they've forfeited their rights. Mm.
0: Or 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 that I don't have to put up with this. Or that I don't have to put up with it. The person who's perhaps inarticulate or perhaps has suffered abuses in a variety of contexts, whether at home or in a professional context, won't necessarily say, I'm in a lot of pain, I'm angry, I need you to listen to me in a polite way. They might just throw a chair across the waiting room, (laughs) which is uh, clearly not helpful, but at the same time it might be understandable. And I think that idea of... Uh, whose narrative is important is one way that staff also think about it because patients sometimes say something like... I I don't want to see a black doctor or I don't want to see a a woman doctor or, you know, uh, you seem too young to know what you're Mm. doing. Sometimes that's polite, sometimes it's very abusive um, and sometimes it's very racist or there's other kinds of uh, prejudice involved. But that's also a kind of credibility gap, isn't it? It's also like saying you can't know what you're doing because you look like you're age 12 or you're black or you're whatever or I only want to see a Muslim doctor because I'm Muslim and I think that will be more sympathetic. So there are, But that can play out in different ways, we di- and the clinicians generally have more power, I'd say, in this situation. Yeah,
1: yeah. so that's, that's a very interesting observation, because that, that suggests that, that actually this phenomenon I'm describing of epistemic injustice cuts both ways. Mm. Mm. I mean, so you, you, uh, the, the patient might suffer from a credibility deficit on account of, of, of their social identity, but you might suffer from credibility deficit on account of your social identity as a woman, or perhaps because you're young, or whatever, whatever, you know, whatever the whatever the reason is, and that I think is a particularly challenging situation for the. Um, for, for, for the for the doctor in in, in these situations, yeah.
0: and and in fact, the skills that we talk about in holding the calm really apply to all clinicians and probably to administrative staff as well, who are often the people who kind of are saying "computer says no, go away" mm. kind of thing, which can trigger, of course, mm. the sense that that somebody's being ignored or or. Yeah. Uh, Almost being treated in a hostile way. So yeah. I think it's very interesting that you start from that because that fits very much with the kind of skillful approach that we mm. would. Um, want to encourage, which is a, a stepping back, a thinking about listening carefully, thinking about the skills you need, and also about showing compassion and care in a difficult situation, which requires us to be quite grounded and grown up in a professional kind of way, doesn't it? it, it it's incredibly challenging.
1: I think if, if, someone, if someone is shouting the odds at you, it's very, very hard to do what I'm describing, mm. um, uh, the the skill here is the skill of stepping back, taking a step back, mm. taking a deep breath, mm. and, and, and asking oneself what is going on yeah, here, yeah. and um, really listening to and listening, the, listening, to the answer, listening to listening the, listening to the very carefully. Yeah. yeah. So
0: I, I think it's helpful in a way to ca- kind of have rummaged around a bit about this idea of rights, responsibilities, narratives, because. It, it, the answer really is there isn't an answer. It's nuanced and complicated. And we're going to come back to that later on in the, in this discussion. I wonder if thinking about the most clinicians think about ethics in fairly... I think philosophically basic mm. ways, that's to say, we think about, are we trying to do good? Are we doing harm? We try and avoid doing harm. We try to do things properly. We also think about whether we're promoting the autonomy and healing of the person in question. And we also think about justice. You know, If I spend two hours talking down somebody who's shouting at me, mm. somebody else has got to wait two hours mm. without care, and that, that may be an injustice to them could you comment about whether we can think sensibly in those terms or or is it too difficult um,
1: I, I think I think those terms are actually just fine I, I think that, that the way you described it actually highlights the te- the, the tensions and challenges of the situation um, there, there, there I think is not going to be um, a kind of um, ethical theory that's going to tell you what you should do mm. in this in this situation I think the only only sensible piece of advice here is to um, uh, be, be mindful of the specifics of the situation, to realise that every individual is a unique individual and that you need to, you need to uh, engage with um, the, uh, what, what they're telling you on, on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, of course there is a duty of care. Of course that's right. Um, um, of course um, patients by and large have the right not to be not to be um, left without medical care, um, the system of which you are a representative um, it, it, uh, 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 owes them owes them care, yeah. and, and and if you are not going to give it, who, who is going to give it? I mean, are they out on the streets? Um, yeah, exactly. Or are they going yeah. to are they going to another? Another practice, in which case the the same problem will reproduce itself in that by in the other practice
0: if they go to another service or whatever, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think this is also interesting in this business about um, we don't have to put up with this because I know recurrently there is an issue about particularly racism and sexism, within services, so amongst and between colleagues, for example, or in the ways in which services are organised, which can be systematically biased against people from certain origins or, or people whose education has been in a different setting, for example, mm. and things mm. like that. And I know that this can lead to a, a similar sense of um, anger and injustice. Mm. And I think if you have been prejudiced against because yeah. you trained in a different country or your skin's the wrong colour, mm. I say wrong colour mm-hmm. in inverted yeah. commas, yeah. Um, then that, that can also lead to this. But as a professional, to, to what extent do we have to put aside those personal Um, feelings. Is is there a sort of moral way, is is there a morality way of thinking about that? Well, so so, so
1: here are two attitudes um, you can have um, to another human being. Um, So first of all there are things called reactive attitudes. So reactive attitudes are um, are where you are reacting to someone with, um, for example, resentment, or, 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 or anger, uh, or bitterness, um, and the point of calling them reactive attitudes is that they—they are attitudes that you have a, as a participant in a social interaction. And having reactive attitudes is is essential to our humanity. You can't be, there'd be something really wrong with you <laughs> if you didn't if have you don't, if you don't have reactive attitudes. Yeah, um, on the other hand, there's what philosophers sometimes call the objective attitude. Um, and you can look at someone uh objectively, which means uh looking at them as someone to be to, to, to be treated or analyzed or understood, but without uh reacting to them.
0: So primarily as um as it were, as you say, something to be understood yeah. rather than directly I am interacting with this person, so there's two phases, there is an interaction because we're human, we can't not interact, but there's another side to it that says, I'm also going to think and reflect and examine and use my skills, whatever they are, in this situation. I think that's a very helpful way of... I mean,
1: I don't don't want to press this analogy too hard, but if you think about um, how you might react to bad behaviour by a young child... (laughs) Mm. uh, I mean, resent, I mean, it'd be rather odd to say I really resented the fact that my five-year-old had a tantrum. Yeah, had a tantrum. Um, in, in that case, I, I mean, what you think? Mean, obviously, the challenge is to try and sort of step back from it, try and figure out what's going on here, mm. and to and and to respond like an adult, as we yeah. as we put it. Yeah. So that 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 is uh, not getting sucked into the cut and thrust mm. um, of, of of the tantrum or the argument, mm. but rather um being more being being cooler and more analytical mm. uh, that's the objective attitude
0: i'm really interested that philosophers have actually got a sort of name for that because i think it's when you can name something or classify something it makes it easier to kind of understand what you're trying to do and i think one of the messages that i'm taking from this is kind of the situations that arise, arise. And some of them are hugely challenging and difficult and nasty and not really what we go to work for, but they do happen. But at the same time, in a sense, however... Um, aggressive or even abusive somebody's being to to a particular clinician, in a way they shouldn't take that personally because they they should have an objective view because it's really in a sense their role which is Mm. being attacked, it's not really Mm. that person doesn't really know you as an individual and even if they did, it's irrelevant in that professional context because you have a professional purpose and if you can avoid taking it personally that also gives you some I'm hesitant to use the word power, but perhaps some poise yeah. and some ability to retain some agency over the situation yeah. because you're not inflamed by your own anger. As it yeah,
1: way. yeah. So, so there's, a, there's a, a really great philosophy article which I will recommend okay. by my old supervisor. Oh, so even my better. So my, my, my teacher in philosophy was one of the great British philosophers of the 20th century called Peter Strawson and many years ago in 1962 he published an essay called freedom and resentment and it's all about the nature of these attitudes and the ability that we have selectively to suspend reactive attitudes right, right. so so his so his so his thought is that it's not possible for human beings to suspend their reactive attitudes at all times mm. in all in all encounters, because to say that is to to do that is not to be human. Mm. But but we, but we do have this ability to suspend reactive attitudes in particular cases, in particular situations. Yeah. And and of course, we, we we suspend reactive attitudes all the time with people who um, are mentally ill, um, who you yeah, yeah, who, who are too young. Yeah. And 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 so his idea is that actually. You know, maturing as an adult is partly a matter of becoming a fit object of reactive attitudes, but also learning when when to suspend
0: them and when not to suspend them. Um, um, yes, I think that's also very helpful to think about, as it were, professional maturity. It's yeah. one thing all clinicians are expected to do is to be non-judgmental, for example. Yeah. And I think it's often difficult to know what that means, and people say, "Well, I." It's easy if you say, oh, well, I'm not judgmental about, let's say, somebody who breaks their leg playing football. Mm -hmm. You could say to them, well, don't play football then. But actually, if there's a broken leg, we non-judgmentally put it back together. If a smoker gets cancer, we don't say, well, it's your own fault, get lost. You just Mm -hmm. say, well, what do we need to do now and how might we do it? I think people understand that, but this... That position of initial non-judgmentalness, yeah. which in this module we call holding the calm, right, right. applies in all these other more difficult and yeah. challenging interpersonal yeah, situations yeah, as well. So yeah. I, I think that's very helpful. And in
1: fact, I mean, if you're thinking about uh, uh, thinking about a, 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 a doctor who's Asian mm. and a patient who is wh- a, a white and racist, I mean, it, it's not even that the doctor needs to not judge the patient. I mean, in the sense that if the Patient is a re- be behaving in these terrible ways. Of course, the doctor might think, well, you know, this, it's, uh, it's not okay. It's, is what, it? it's not okay. Mm. But that's different from engaging an, an, with a patient at an emotional level. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, if you met someone in your social life, in your, in your civilian life, as mm. it were, mm. who uh, spoke to you in those ways, it would be perfectly appropriate for you to be extremely resentful mm. and for your resentment to come out. In the way you speak and how you react uh, to them, but in your professional capacity, although you you know you can think, and of course you'll think certain things about the patient, but but that's not to say that 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 you should get involved in a in a in a, in, in a confrontation yeah. with them, or indeed should allow your emo, your emotions to be the driver yeah. of um, of of your response. So this is a case in which you need you need to acquire the skill of suspending your your reactive attitude your reactive attitudes
0: yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think that's very very interesting you know, that philosophers talk about this sort of thing because i think a lot of clinicians a lot of clinical work Um, it's very absorbing but we exist in a bit of a bubble in a way and we forget that outside the bubble people are thinking about these these things very deeply as well so that's why it's so fantastic to have somebody like yourself who comes in from outside with these things. Can I just say also
1: just one additional
0: thing I mean of course
1: I think this is relevant that I I myself am am Asian and Muslim Mm -hmm. and um, certainly growing up in, in Britain in the 1970s and 1980s experienced uh, all kinds uh, all, all kinds of, 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 of abuse including mm. racist abuse so i so in case anyone's thinking but he doesn't really know what yeah. what, what, <laughs> what, it's, what, what it's like to be called yeah. whatever it is whatever mm. the mm. racial mm. epithet is i mm. i mean I, of course I, I know what it's like and i know how hurtful it is mm. and how infuriated mm. one one you know one becomes but 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 that's the that's the skill the skill of of parking all that stuff um and and, and, and the, the skill of suspending one's reactive attitudes and, and being c- coolly
0: analytical. Okay, so I think it's really helpful to think about this idea of detachment and not taking things too personally. And as that being a skill, the, the Buddhists talk about skillful behaviour and there's a sort of Buddhist parable where they say mm-hmm. somebody's really angry with you and shouting at you. It's as if they're throwing rubbish at you or as if they're throwing a, a piece of boiling hot metal at you. And in that situation, would you hold onto the metal or collect the rubbish and rub it on yourself? Well, you probably wouldn't. You'd probably step aside, let it fall on the floor, and then step back and think, how am I going to have all this situation? So it's a a kind of not letting yourself be um, influenced too much by other people's emotions and uh, and, uh, feelings, isn't it? So that you can retain your own centred, poised, calm position. Exactly, exactly. I'd like to just take that a little step further because there's another layer to this in health work in particular in that it's often relatively inexperienced or junior staff who may initially encounter very aggressive or abusive patients. It may be administrative staff or it may be less skilled staff or people in training and naturally and sensibly and correctly they refer these problems to somebody more senior. And It seems to me that sometimes the senior person may do exactly as you've described, talk to the patient, look at the bigger situation, solve the problem, whatever it is. Do they also have a kind of ethical responsibility towards that junior person who may be feeling aggrieved or upset or frightened or insulted or whatever? Because sometimes if the senior just deals with the situation, the other people involved can feel like, oh, well, they just gave the patient what they wanted or whatever, and they feel a bit... Uh, uncomfortable. So I, I just wonder what a philosopher would think about that.
1: Um, well, well, two things. I mean, on the one hand, I think there is a, there is a responsibility that senior staff have to um, to their junior staff to to, to look after them. Mm. Um, and I think what you're describing is a particular form of looking after. But on the other hand, one also has to think in terms of uh, or learning opportunities. I mean, however. Unfortunate it sounds. These every one of these situations for you know for people starting out is actually a learning opportunity. Because however awful it is at the time, uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, as their careers develop, they're going to have to learn to deal with. Um, and and if there's if there's a, a senior person in their practice or on their team um, who is able to deal with the situation appropriately and in a way that diffuses it um, then that's a skill which the, the 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 more junior staff member would be well advised to you know to acquire mm-hmm. so i think what 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 would not be satisfactory is if the senior staff member just deals with it um uh, it, but without without enli- enlightening their juniors about you know well, what you do in a situation like this, um, so I think there's, both, you know there's a, as it were an educational dimension to this as well as a as well as a duty of care dimension.
0: Mm. And th- I think that also that educational dimension also I would say includes not just demonstrating the skills or explaining the skills, but also perhaps debriefing that person's experience. And how they felt and why they felt as they did and what they could do to to manage themselves as well as to manage the situation. And I think there is that tension, isn't there, or perhaps it isn't a tension between detachment and dealing with something in a rather, as you say, cool and analytical way, while remaining compassionate to all involved. And I wonder if you think there's a a contradiction there. Uh,
1: I I don't see any contradiction at all, um, either in general or or in this particular case. I mean... Um, So here's a situation that I I haven't been in, but I'm sure many people listening have been in, of being at the bedside of a patient who is dying, perhaps in great pain. Um, uh, uh, Compassion, I think, means um, being and showing concern for their predicament, even if there's not much you can do to help them. It's about showing them that you can. Um, uh, But detachment... I think is essential too because at the end of this process you 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 have to go home mm-hmm. and live your life mm-hmm. with your family mm-hmm. um, and and you have to be able to detach yourself from these situ- situations to the extent of not um, not being distressed yourself to the extent of not being able to do your job mm-hmm. um, and, and I don't see there any difference between any any tension between compassion um, compassion and, and, and detachment. I mean, if detachment is understood as a, a, indifference, then of course that's incompatible with compassion. But I, I, I don't see—I don't see it as, 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 as indifference. I see it simply as uh, the ability to draw a, to draw an emotional boundary around around something, and recognizing there is a distinction between the self and the other. I mean, there's the patient is the other, and the self is you,
0: um, and. You, you're not the same. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's really important, and that, I think that's important at so many levels because it also enables you to deal with that patient and then, in a sense, to let go of that and maybe deal with the next patient yeah. or your yeah. colleague or whatever it is, or yeah. your friends or your family or your hobby or whatever it is you need to yeah. do next. I think that's all very helpful. One of the things that, for me, has come out of this whole discussion is that there's a level of skill, interpersonal skills and so on. There are thinking skills and so on which mean that there isn't a straightforward single answer to any of these problems. And in, in general practice in particular, we often use the term phrenesis to talk about this. And, and that, I think, means something like practical wisdom. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this idea that there isn't a single right answer and that we might need to think about things in quite a nuanced way.
1: Yeah, so I, I think one of the one of the uh, features of the life of a medic is that you have... Endless guidelines and protocols, uh, which are uh, you know, which are useful and important, that are based on research at the level of the entire populations. Um, but then you're confronted with the individual patient who is a particular with a particular configuration of, 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 of symptoms in a particular medical history. Uh, and practical wisdom or phronesis consists at least partly in the ability to see how the guidelines apply or whether they do apply in this particular instance. Um, so, so so there's there's always there's always a kind of interaction between the general and the particular. Um, and, and and the challenge is always applying the general to the particular. And, and and to to have practical wisdom is to is to have the skill of, of doing that in a nuanced way, of doing that in a way that, that, that doesn't um, ignore the particularity of the individual that you're that you're dealing with. And some uh, gu- guidelines may not apply clearly in a given case and then you have to work out you have to work out what to do and there's a point which which the philosopher Wittgenstein made a long time ago about um, guidelines or rules a very deep point which is he said look guidelines or rules do not apply themselves you have to apply them um, and if you say yeah but maybe there should be a rule for applying the rule okay well what about that rule. <laughs> right? So, 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 so he said, look, you, you, you end up with a kind of infinite regressive rules, each rule as a rule for interpreting a prior rule, but of course that's absurd. Right? So, so, so it, let's cut out this multiple, this layer of multiple rules and just think about the initial rule or the initial guideline and the fact that applying it in a particular case is not a mechanical exercise, it's a highly skillful exercise. And and, and, and a, a skillful doctor is someone who is able to, to, to do that in a nuanced and sensitive way and who is always aware of the fact that they are dealing with a particular thing.
0: That's very interesting because I, I, I would say that is the difference between the sort of computer says no yeah. uh, thing where, you know... Uh, w- we don't give give out this drug, or you need 24 hours' notice for a prescription. And that nuanced practical wisdom, which, which applies throughout clinical work, actually, and some of our admin staff are very good at this, where they will say we normally expect 24 hours notice for a Mm. prescription, but I know that you're about to fly to India for your father's funeral, Mm. and therefore we need to try and get your prescription ready for you much quicker than usual, because in this particular situation, there's a reason why you're not just rocking up because you couldn't be bothered, but there's a reason why we need to help you quickly. And actually, that's where compassion meets uh, the rule, isn't it? And that's what enables you to... Apply the rule, and I like the idea that you know the rules don't apply themselves. Humans, yeah, apply, humans rules. apply them. Don't
1: they? Yeah, yeah, and this is this is a you know a general point about life. I mm-hmm. mean, supposing your 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 rule is my children have to be in bed at nine o'clock. <laughs> yes. But tonight is the Champions League final, and and you know they care deeply about yeah. this. Well, okay. Yeah. So so in this case,
0: yeah, it's, it's Christmas Eve. You yeah, can stay up as I mean, long as you like. Yeah, you know, whatever so,
1: it is. So, so yeah. You, yeah. So so there's an element of of, of flexibility yeah. that's required yeah. in the application of any rule. Uh, or, or, or any or any guideline.
0: Yes, when it applies to humans. Yeah. Well, that that's incredibly helpful. Um, so I'm going to sum up by saying that philosophers have thought about problems in many ways. They do illuminate what we do. That that all the skills of teaching, learning, consultation skills are useful in this situation, and that to build up your skills in abusive situations or aggressive situations. It's often helpful to have your basic skills in place and to have this skill of detachment and thinking about things. Uh, Two things. I know you've done some work on applying professional virtues in a clinical situation. Um, Perhaps you'd like to say something about that and I'll explain to people about how they can get access to more resources at the end.
1: Yeah, so I I have a website um, called Professional Virtues in Modern Medicine. Uh, which you can also download as an ebook, uh, and in this website I talk about the, the the personal qualities that you you need to cultivate to be an excellent general practitioner. Uh, and actually, interestingly, two of the uh, two of the personal qualities I mention are detachment and uh, situational judgment. And I have a list of ten, and I also try and explain in general terms, what these professional virtues um, are.
0: And do you think they apply to other professionals, for example, a paramedic or a nurse or a surgeon? Are they fairly widely applicable in uh, clinical work?
1: Um, I, 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 believe, I believe they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also, interestingly, recently asked to produce a version of this for a tech security company wow. <laughs> based, in, based in Canada. that that, that manufactures and markets airport security software and they were quite interested in um, how this virtue framework might apply to them, now, not surprisingly, the virtues that came out of that exercise were somewhat different yeah. uh, from the virtues in this exercise. But it's a framework that I think is applicable to mu- multiple different professions, but, but you get particular results in the case yeah. of general practice. Yeah.
0: And you'd get more emphasis on different elements with different things, but I, I can see how even in the situation of airport security, there might be questions about confi- confidentiality, yeah. for yeah. example, or trustworthiness yes. and so on. That, yeah. That's really interesting so um, I'm going to wind up now and say thank you very very much for coming to be our resident philosopher on this occasion and with the uh, resources that go along with this chapter there will be some links and websites and of course use all the modules that are within the Talc Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills resource to help you deal with these especially difficult and challenging situations thank you very much well thanks for the invitation this podcast was brought to you by NHS professional educators, making training available to all.